You can flip on over to Isaiah 6. We're going to continue on. Um, we're going to probably hit today some of the more familiar sections of the first half of Isaiah. Some of the stuff that, particularly around Christmas, you're going to hear a lot of these verses bubble up that we're going to be reading today. Again, I'm, I'm going to make the half-hearted promise that I'm not going to read every word today, um, but I'll probably slip into, I'm going to give it a shot mode, um, but there's enough repetition, I won't even be able to do it. Um, I did um, start writing these again after we took the summer to do Colossians. I didn't really feel the need to do this, especially since I wasn't, we weren't teaching Colossians the same way, but basically, for those of you who are new um, one of the ways that I get ready to, to come and talk anywhere is I write myself a one to two page summary of whatever it is I want to say. Some people say you should be able to get your points down into a single sentence. I try to get it on the front and back of one page. I'm a little long-winded. Um, but um, I realized that for years I just have like these, these things I've written to myself piling up in folders on my computer. But it might be helpful if I just started giving this to people and say, like, if you want to, like, remember what Ryan said or see the clear version, despite Ryan's ability to muddy the waters, this might be something valuable. So I, I kind of write this for myself and then polish it up for you and give it to you. So throw it away, use it, keep it, whatever. Um, but this isn't necessarily what we'll be going through. This is almost a takeaway for each week. Um, and if you kind of... If you want to see the, the four questions I kind of ask myself, that's, that's kind of the four headings, despite if I might reword them. I always ask, why do we need to know this? What do we need to know? What do we need to do? Why do we need to do it? If I can answer those four questions, I feel like I can teach something. And so that's kind of the four paragraphs I write. Why do we need to read this? Why do we need to read these six chapters? What's in these six chapters? Why or what should we be doing and why should we care? So that's what I try to do. Um, and today we'll be in chapter 6 through 12. Now, before you start saying, are you just biting off as much as you could possibly cover and arbitrarily cutting it off? That's, that's not what we did whenever we divided up the book. Um, uh, basically, this, this book is not... Isaiah didn't sit down and say, chapter 1. This is a collection of Isaiah's ministry, kind of, these are, these are things that he has said, uh, messages he has preached, even things that have been written down at the time that have then later on been collected and organized. And therefore, there are very distinct units within the book that we can, we can say, oh, 1 through 5 is a unit. 6 through 12, you'll see, is an actually like a really well-packaged unit. Next week, 13 through 23, we're going to go even further, 10, verse, 10 chapters. But again, there are 10 short chapters, 10 chapters that basically say the same thing over and over in a prophetic style. But they go together as a unit. And so that's, how, that's why, wow, we're making these huge jumps. Are you just trying to get through it? In some ways, yes. Like We could teach Isaiah for the next three years if I wanted to go verse by verse. And that would be pushing it. Maybe four. Um, but we have, like, I, there's some good stuff here that I want to deal with. And I think that the, a, a reason that we don't ever teach Isaiah in settings like this is because of the length. And so I'm just going to say, let's skim over the length, get down to the good stuff, and not be afraid of a big, big book. And so that's why in an hour we're going to try to do ten chapters. We'll never do them their full justice, but find me a human being that can do full justice to the Scriptures, and I'll find you a liar. So... Um, <laughs> There's always going to be more to come back and read, and that's what we'll do. So we'll do... I already want to do John again. I don't want to subject you guys to just Ryan Vincent's favorite books, but it's already like, ah, there's so many more things in John that I want to cover. 
So who knows? We'll do Isaiah again next fall. No, we won't. But um, okay, let's do chapter six. Um, basically, chapter six is going to be a very familiar chapter. Chapter nine is going to be a very familiar chapter um, in these in these two books, specifically because chapter six is Isaiah's call. Um, many of us are familiar with this story, with even some of the language that Isaiah uses. I'm a man of unclean lips. We know these, these particular phrases. But how it fits in with chapters 7, 8, and 9, and then 10, 11, and 12, and how 12 and 6 are actually talking to each other makes this a much more robust section as we read kind of how it's breaking down. So I want to diagram it as best I can. So Isaiah 6 through 12, we basically have A1, which I'll call chapter 6. And it's going to meet up with A2, which is chapter 12. And in between, you have B and C, which are going to run parallel to one another. And we will talk about what this middle section is and how it affects these. But let's deal with 6 first. So 6 is generally known as Isaiah's call. So let's start in verse 1. We won't read all through 6, but we need to read through at least the first little bit. In the year that King Uzziah died, now if you want to know more about the historical context and when this stuff is actually located on the timeline, believe me, I would love to draw a timeline. I enjoy that. Don't have time. Don't have time for a timeline. That was funnier than... Anyway, um, go back and listen to the introduction of Isaiah on the Sunnybrook kind of teaching archive. Matt covered a bunch of this stuff. So, and then if you want more information on King Uzziah or the, the kings themselves, Find a, um, a reference Bible and just go back into the books of Kings and Chronicles and see when this stuff lines up. Anyway, we know that now we're, we're entering, we're, we're coming out of chapters 1 through 5, which are abstractly, this is the problem with the nation. And abstractly, this is what God is going to do. And then in chapter 6, we start to hit, hit the historical problem. Now we're going to see this stuff play out real time with real kings and real enemies. So, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. High and lifted up, and that's an important phrase, high and lifted up. We'll see it later. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Now, when you see the word temple, we just instinctively think, oh, the place where God is. And it's actually that profound, the place where God is. When you see temple, it is a reference to the very presence of God. It's not the same thing as the Grand Canyon, which has... You know, it's got God splattered all over it. It's just impressive. It's beautiful. It's majestic. That's not what the temple is intended to refer to. It's intended to um, conjure images of God's, like, holy presence that you cannot escape. It's overwhelming where God is with his people. So, the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, one of the angelic creatures. Each had six wings. And with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And, the, and one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. This reminds me a lot of um, a similar throne room scene in Revelation 5. And it's interesting to read them next to one another. Revelation steals a lot of um, its phrasing and a lot of its imagery from this particular book. Not so much as Ezekiel, but some from Isaiah. 
And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Um, again, think back to Solomon's dedication of the temple as he builds it in um, First Kings, like 7, 8, and 9, dedication of the temple. And the priests go in, they march the ark into the, the newly built temple. Solomon, they finally got away from this tabernacle. They have a permanent place for the Ark of the Covenant. They march it in, and then they have to run for their lives because the Lord's glory descends on the building. One of my favorite chapters in the whole Bible, as God descends on this building and humanity can't stand His presence and they have to run. That's what we have here. It shook at the voice of Him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And Isaiah speaks, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. So, in in a word, I am sinful in the presence of something so powerful and majestic. And so are my people. Isaiah is not the disconnected prophet yelling at his people. He's one of them, guilty before God. My eyes have seen the king Yahweh of hosts, that's his name, capital L-O-R-D. Then, and this is a beautiful exchange, so he stands before God guilty, worthy of death, worthy of destruction. Then, verse 6, one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. Now, I've always read that too quickly. Taken, where did he get this coal? From the point of sacrifice. And now he's going to go and purify Isaiah as he is encountering this sacrificial system. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And your sin, that word atoned is a big one. Is anybody reading out of a different translation? This is the ESV. Do any other translations use a different word for that? Say atoned? Okay. Good. Okay. Okay. See, this, uh, all of these are consistent with what atonement actually means. There are some translations, I can't even recall which ones, that say your guilt has been forgotten, which could not be further from the idea of atonement. Atonement is that your guilt has been dealt with. And God's justice is maintained. And so something has paid for this sin. God cannot just forget sin. Um, It's described in that way, but it's always in the context of a sacrifice. So it's like there is an exchange here, kind of a judicial exchange. Someone is guilty, therefore a, a punishment must be paid. And he says, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. So, in this particular section, now we're going to talk about what is, what is he saying in chapter 6. We're not going to read the back half of chapter 6, but, well, we might read some or all of it. We'll see. Um, first of all, the first important thing is Isaiah is cleansed. And this is an important part of this chapter because we so quickly go to Isaiah's call, to his ministry, to his mission to go and proclaim this gospel that is going to be um, rejected by and large. We'll see kind of the, the characteristics of those he'll be preaching to. But first, he's purified. First, he is set right. Can't just go and preach. His sins must be dealt with initially. 
And so he's, he's cleansed. And he is um, brought into fellowship. I saw the other one. So um, let's say he now experiences God's presence fully. Then he's commissioned. So verse 8, And I heard a voice... I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull. And it goes on and on, describes the people that he's going to talk to. Now, we're preaching a Matthew series. Jesus describes this, re- this response to his parables in Matthew 13. Unless you think that like Isaiah's got a bad rap, that he's like, you're asking me to go and preach something that no one's going to like and no one's going to listen to and no one's going to respond to. Yep. And Jesus says, and that's kind of how people hear my parables. Isn't it amazing that the, like, the perfect person is, like, can't connect to everyone? Can't, this is why like, I totally, like, there are going to be things I say today that are mistakes. There's going to be things that one day I'll find out are wrong and I'm going to sleep like a baby tonight. Because like, I just feel like there's some sort of sovereign control over what is heard and what isn't. Doesn't mean I get the past to be reckless, but I do see that like Isaiah recognized that a lot of what he did would be futility, and so, so too with Jesus. But he, because he is cleansed and therefore can experience God's presence, he is commissioned to proclaim the truths about God. I'm using that word specifically because of how it's going to line up with 12. But there is a condition that you are set right with God and therefore you can, in, you can stand in His presence and therefore you can proclaim truth. Um, and I don't want to read more into this than is there, but I, I, there is something about the way that this chapter unfolds that maybe this is necessary to experience this. And maybe this is necessary to be able to proclaim truth in any real fashion. Don't know? We'll see how it kind of plays out. So this brings us in. So that finishes chapter 6. Didn't read all of it. I'm kind of proud of myself. Um, Let's go to the very last verse, though, because it feeds into 7. He is going to describe the destruction of the nation and that they are going to be um, deported, that their cities are going to be laid bare, and they're going to be cut down like a tree, all at God's sovereign hand as he uses foreign armies, and then he ends with, uh, and though a tenth remain in it, kind of insinuating that there's going to be a remnant, we'll talk about that in a second, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. The holy seed, he's going to pick up on that phrase in just a bit in, further on in Isaiah. Um, Paul makes a big deal about this. Like, he goes to Abraham's seed, and he, he pulls in the imagery that's coming through this particular um, passage and other places in Isaiah in Galatians when he makes a huge deal that it's seed singular. And, and, I, and this is, again, like Paul is almost playing grammatical tricks that he doesn't need to play, but he's going to make a big deal out of something to prove a point, that this seed is, is not the church, as some would have it, or it's not even um, Israel, as probably many Israelites read this for the longest time. It's the perfect Israelite. So in some sense, it could be Israel, but it's 
Paul makes a big deal in Galatians to point out that this seed is a person, a singular person that we're now looking for. And we're going to see him pop up in our chapters um, today. So, that is chapter 6. Isaiah is the prototype for what's going to take place in both Judah, which is the two southern um, tribes, and Israel, which are the rebellious ten tribes to the north. And he is going to set the standard for what's going to happen to them. There's going to be sin that needs to be dealt with before they can experience God, before God can be seen in them, before they can again um, kind of live as the people of God. And he's going to tell the story through Judah, and then he's going to tell the same story through Israel before we get into chapter 12. Um, yes? One of the things that strikes me as you read about the devastation of this land, it's the promised land, it's the land of milk and honey, it's the place where God was going to fulfill all of their dreams, and now you see this picture of a devastated promised land, a devastated holy land, mm-hmm. and that underlying, you know, it's not just any tree, it's a Almost, and not any land, it, it's the land God gave us, and now look at it. Yes, and, and running through their minds would have been this nagging question, have we nullified the covenant like in such a way that it cannot be repaired? Are we no longer going to be God's people? Have we messed it up so bad that we no longer get to be God's special people? Have we undone the Abrahamic promise? A good reading of the scriptures would say can't do that. But the, uh, so much of the Mosaic Covenant is actually, uh, the law given at Sinai is conditional. You do this so that I'll do that. If you don't, I won't. And actually, if you don't, I'm going to bring it down on you hard. That's kind of the Mosaic Covenant. Do these things so that you will live long in the land, is the refrain in Deuteronomy. Do this so that you will live long in the land. Okay, you stop doing this. I'm taking the land. And it is, it is enough to just unnerve the nation as they now wonder, will God ever extend us mercy? They, like These questions come up when I, whenever someone is questioning whether or not God can forgive whatever heinous sin they've committed. It's like, yeah, look, the Bible's full of people asking that same question. And the Bible is this vibrant picture of God saying, you have no idea how wicked you are and you have no idea how deep my grace is. And, he, and they're, they're left wondering what's going to happen. King Ahaz in chapter 7 is going to be our first example of someone who really doesn't get it. So we're going to see um, in, the, in each of these cases. Actually, I want to move this over here so i got room to write. In Judah's case, there's first going to be a moment of decision. God is going to say, all right, let's see if you can decide to obey me. Maybe another way of putting it, trust me. And he engages with King Ahaz, and this is, let me see if I got the, King Ahaz in 7, 1 through 17. I put them in your summary, but the overarching kind of section breakdowns, this one goes from, the, the prophecy to Judah goes from 7-1 to 9-7. So, he first says, 
you need to trust God. So here's what takes place. Chapter 7, verse 1. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, the king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramalia, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it. A bunch of names flowing over there. Most important one is Judah. The most important one is the name Judah. This man is an ancestor of or, or, or a descendant of his ancestor Judah, the tribe from which the Davidic king should come. The dynasty is what we're told here in the, at the beginning of this section. The, di- the Davidic dynasty is now at stake. We are now worried that we're going to lose the Davidic line. That one thing that we're clinging to hope in. Because if you recall, and I wrote this down in, in the handout, Genesis 1, Adam is commissioned to rule the world. He never, he's never called a king, but he has all the responsibilities of a king. Fails. In Genesis 17, Abraham is promised the perfect, true, and just king is going to come from you. Okay, and so now we know it's going to be someone from Abraham. In Genesis 49, we are told now it's going to come from the tribe of Judah. Okay, we're getting a little more clear. 2 Samuel 7, it's going to be a descendant of King David. Okay. And now we see King David's line is being threatened. As God is saying, you've got a choice to make. Here's what he says. As the foreign invaders, um, the, the Assyrian kings are coming in to wage war. Verse 2, it says, the, When the house of David, important line, When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim. Ephraim, I erased it. Ephraim is uh, Israel, the northern tribes. So whenever you see Ephraim, I think that's right. Am I missing a A in there? Nope, got it. He's saying, your your former kinsmen, the the Israelites to the north, have may, have struck a deal with Assyria. And house of David, in a, in a word, we're all screwed because we have no allies anymore. And Assyria is on their own far more powerful than us. Now they have our former kinsmen as their new allies. Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people. That would be the king of Judah, the southern kingdom, shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. Terrified about what's about to happen. So too have been the nation. Verse 3. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool in the highway of the washer's field. Um, I haven't had time to track it down. It's just interesting how many geographical and political references are in these sections of Scripture where people would love to say that this was made up after the fact or that something was uh, assembled after the fact. But. Reminds me a lot of Luke's gospel. Verse 4, And say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint, because these two smoldering stumps of firebrands, at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Ramalia, because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Ramalia has devised evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves, and let us set up the son of Tobiel as the king in midst of it. So he says, Despite you seeing them come in, don't be scared. Isaiah, man who speaks for God, says, don't worry about this. 
Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. And he says, Within 65 years, Israel will be shattered from being a people. The north will fall. The head of Israel is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. He's saying, trust me, be patient, let me work this out. <laughs> and then he asks, he, the Lord asks the king to challenge him. It's almost like he says, hey, you should act more like Gideon, who's not really an admirable person. But like, beg me to prove myself. He says in verse 10, Again, Yahweh spoke to King Ahaz, Ask a sign of Yahweh your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. He says, ask anything. But, in the moment of decision, whether he will believe or trust or obey God, Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. A coward hiding under some idea of Humility. A coward saying, no, I'm not going to trust you to bail us out on this. I'm terrified of these foreign invaders. I don't believe you're going to do anything. And just to prove it, I would say, like, it's like this false piety. I would never trust the Lord. And he's like, well, now you're going to get your head stomped. You should have believed me. And they will be judged as a result. Verse 13 and he said, Hear then, O house of David. Is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. You have this famous section. We'll just finish out this last paragraph and not read the rest of seven. He shall eat curds and honey. Um, that can at times sound like a a synonym to the idea of milk and honey, like the, the promised land is so beautiful. Curds and honey were the food of the poor. So he said he'll be born into poverty. When he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, for before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. So he says, because you wouldn't trust me, this is how I'm going to fix it. And by the way, I'm going to fix it a long time after any of this stuff shakes out. These two kings will be goners before I fix it. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. He says, because you refuse to obey me, because you refuse to, to trust me, I'm still going to redeem things. It's just going to, in, in this particular case, take several hundred years before I do so. And as a result of your disobedience, you will be destroyed. You will long for the days whenever your brothers rebelled against you and bloodshed ensued. So, in the moment of decision, Judah doesn't make the right one. Which brings us to the next section. The judgment. We're going to see over and over again that God deals with sin and deals with it absolutely so. The judgment section runs from 718 to 8.8. Eight. Um, 
for the sake of time, I'm not going to read much of this at all, but just know this describes the Assyrian invasion as the armies come down and crush Israel and start to put a lot of pressure on Judah. Israel's ruined. Judah is overwhelmed. Which brings us to, so, this is this, brings us to the next section. Though there will be judgment, there will also be a remnant. So that runs from 8, 9 through 22. The remnant um, in this particular section is described as having their, um, their enemies will be crushed. So God will use Assyria to judge His people. Yes. But that doesn't mean that God has any particular favor or mercy towards Assyria. He will judge them and He will crush them. So there's, another, there's a little twinkle of hope for God's people. And then it says that God's people will become secure. Let's see if there's... Jump down to... So verses 9 and 10 of chapter 8 is just a little uh, poetry about the destruction of Israel's enemies. But I want to look at verse 11. This is the hope that the remnant should have. This is the hope that those who are left have in God. For Yahweh spoke thus to me with His strong hand upon me. And warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy that is this people. Do not call conspiracy all that is this people, all that this people calls conspiracy. And do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. That's God asking Isaiah, Don't think like your foolish, um, your foolish national relatives or the, the foolish Israelites. But, verse 13, Yahweh of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread, and he will become a sanctuary, and a stone of offense, and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel. Um, ideas, phrases, and images that are later applied to Jesus. One of my favorite things about the book of Isaiah is that, like, as it goes in and out of descriptions of the one who saves, it's you have to be very careful that you can track the references because sometimes it's God, sometimes it's um, this servant, sometimes it's an anointed one, sometimes it's this guy named Emmanuel. And you step back from the whole book and you just realize, I wonder if it's all the same person. Like if this is all the same being. It's beautiful. So, he says, verse 15, Many shall stumble on it. And they shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. In effect, there will be a remnant, but not many will agree or, or will adhere to the way the Lord wants to run things. And then he says in verse 16, Bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells in Zion." He, this, this whole section says, those of you considered a remnant, fear God, not man. And things will fare well for you. Which brings us to the final section of the words to Judah. It says, if you will rebel against me, there will be a purging, there will be judgment. And he'll use Assyria to do that in their case. Yet, 
in his great mercy, there will be a remnant. There will be some who remain. And then he says, and you can trust in this glorious hope. And here's where you get to the beautiful messianic sections of these prophecies. So, chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. Here's the language you guys will all know from Christmas time. But, verse nine, or chapter 9, verse 1, There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea and the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. In a nutshell, without explaining all the geographical reference, in a nutshell, that is saying there used to be a spot that was really favored by God called the Holy Land. We're going to expand that and it's going to go out to the nations. You have, I think, a foreshadowing of the Gentile inclusion of God bringing in the Abrahamic covenant and say you will be a blessing to all the nations as he starts to expand the geography here. Then, the part that we all know so well. The people who walked in darkness, this is verse 2, have seen a great light. I wonder what that is. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. And I, Every time I see these kind of references, I just think of John's prologue in his gospel as he starts to talk about this beautiful light. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. Again, going out beyond the national borders. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Jump down to verse 6. Here's how it all takes place. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder in talking about kind of a ruling authority, and his name shall be called, this is a divine decree, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. That's an eternal kingdom, and that's worldwide peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it. Remember, in Ahaz, they think they're losing the Davidic dynasty. And he says, you're going to lose Ahaz. And you're actually going to lose your country. But there will be a Davidic king. And he will be the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness. If you remember back to the national sins of chapters 1 through 5, Those were things the people weren't doing. They weren't maintaining justice. They were oppressing people. There was no righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So, you have this picture of the glorious hope that will bring the remnant about. Now, in Israel, we have this same story taking place from 9-8 through 11-6. And in Israel, he's going to talk about their moment of decision where they fail to obey, how they are judged by Assyria, how even in Israel there is a remnant, and how even for Israel there is the glorious hope of the coming Messiah. So, um, let's see if there's anywhere that's worth stopping and lingering. So, The moment of decision takes place. I guess you might want some references. 9, 8 through 10, 4. Yeah. 
This is the people rejecting the words, Lord, sent to the house of Jacob. They refuse to repent. Um, it's just over and over they refuse to repent. There is a refrain here that is worth noting. Look at the last half of verse 12. So it describes all their sins. And it says, for all, this is actually all the judgment that's raining down on them for their sins. God is purifying them. He's destroying Israel. And it says, for all, his ang- for all this, his anger has not turned away. His hand is stretched out still. It says God's judgment is unrelenting because there's a, a strident refusal to repent for the nation. Look at the end of verse 17. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. They refuse to repent. Look at the end of verse 21. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. They have refused to repent. Look at 10.1. Woe to those who decree iniquitous degree, decrees and writers who keep writing oppression. They won't learn. They keep doing evil. And then the end of verse 4. For all this his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. It's amazing how people can like be so blind to... That's, that's generally the story of chapters 1 through 5. Despite the absolute destruction of your nation, you still sin and refuse to repent. Despite your election, your calling as a holy people, you still refuse to repent. And despite all God's grace in chapter 5, where he describes this vineyard that's been perfectly tended by the perfect gardener, you still sin and refuse to repent. And so he said, I will not lift my hand of judgment. We see in these chapters an incredible picture of God's unflinching holiness. He can't tolerate sin. That's why he can't forget about it. That's why he's got to deal with it, atone for it. Then in the judgment section on Israel, we have 10, 5 through 15. They are judged, as we've seen so far, by the Assyrian invasion. Israel is crushed. Judah is is pressured. Assyria won't conquer Judah. Um, historically, the, uh, Judah will fall about 150 years later to another kingdom, uh, the Babylonians. But Judah takes a hit, and they lose a lot of territory. They are, they are not unscathed by the Assyrian invasion. They won't be conquered, though. Israel is done for. But at the end of this section, Assyria, Assyria is the, the mode of punishment on Israel, and Assyria themselves will be punished in this section. So you see God doling out justice everywhere. Um, if, you're, if you love the complexity of God's sovereignty, like I know Hope does, Hope's head is always swirling on what God does and doesn't allow. Um, look at verse 12 of chapter 10. When the Lord has finished all His work on Mount Zion... That would be Jerusalem. And on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. Which tells us that the Assyrian king thinks he's really that powerful. He's really that good. And God says, you arrogant fool. I used you. I propped you. I built you. You remember when I sent that prophet, Jonah, to tell you to repent so that I wouldn't crush you? You're welcome. Now I'm going to crush you. I, I truly think that that's the story of Jonah, is that God is using Jonah to store up and to protect an army that he will one day judge his own people with. And here we have them being judged.
with the Assyrians, who will themselves not escape judgment. The end of uh, verse 13, for he says, By the strength of my hand I have done it, and by my wisdom, for I have understanding. Assyria's power is given, but it's not recognized who gives it. And then I love the sarcasm of verse 15. Shall the axe boast over him who hews with it, or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it? God says, you're just a tool in my hands. You're not impressive. I raised up this army, and I will tear it back down. Then we get to the remnant. And this is from 1016 to 34. Um, so it describes the destruction of Assyria, then the, the salvation of the remnant, and the unexpected kind of relenting on Jerusalem. Um, verse 20 of chapter 10. Finally they learn. In that day the remnant of Israel, this is a, this is a future reality, this is not something that Isaiah experienced, but it's something that he speaks to. In that day the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. A remnant will return the remnant of Jacob to the mighty God. For though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness. That in itself is just quite the line. Destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness. For the Lord God of hosts will make a full end as decreed in the midst of all the earth. It's interesting, a lot of times when you see the Lord of hosts, it's actually a, a kind of a military phrase for him, saying the Lord and his armies. And it's interesting that he's talking about this in the context of the Assyrian army. And here's the comforting line, Therefore, verse 24, Therefore thus says the Lord God of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, be not afraid of the Assyrians when they strike with the rod and lift up their staff against you as the Egyptians did. For in a very little while my fury will come to an end and my anger will be directed towards their destruction. So God assures them, this is going to hurt, but it's going to be good for you. It's going to be painful, but it'll be purifying. And they won't escape unscathed. And then we get to the glorious hope as it's described. This is from 11, 1 through 16. And he describes again the reign of the Davidic king, um, the righteousness of his reign and its worldwide nature. So let's, let's take a look at this. Verse 1 of chapter 11. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Allah, the Davidic line. Um, think back to Isaiah 6.13 where he talks about that, that seed coming from the stump. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of Yahweh shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of Yahweh. And his delight shall be in the fear of Yahweh. He shall not judge by what his eyes sees or what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor. He says, unlike you um, human rulers, he won't be biased. He will judge rightly. 
Verse 5, righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and, the faithful, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. And then there's this incredible picture of, of nature at harmony, of creation at harmony. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, this is verse 6, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. And a little child shall lead them, the cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of a cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So like chaos, destruction, judgment, hope. It's like things will be set right. And then there's worldwide peace described in verse 10. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, that would be the world, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. This root of Jesse, whatever he is, this wonderful counselor, he's going to attract the world to him, the true worldwide leader. Um... That's probably all I want to read in that section. So let's, let's finish this out and then kind of talk what we get from this particular section in Isaiah. I told you that chapter 12 is the natural kind of response and result of chapter 6. Isaiah is the prototype of what God does. He deals with sin so that, so that he can again have communion with his people and they can again proclaim and sing about his goodness. So here we have... A story of, in chapter 12, it's the whole chapter, it's a pretty short one. We have the story of salvation for God's people. They're again living in God's presence, or His presence with them. And there is the proclamation of His goodness. So here's the salvation. This is, again, some future reality that, that Isaiah is describing. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Yahweh, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away, that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid, for Yahweh God is my strength and my song, and He has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation, and you will say in that day, here's the proclamation side, give thanks to the Lord, call upon His name. This is an evangelistic text right here. And make known His deeds among the peoples. Proclaim that His name is exalted. Sing praises to Yahweh, for He has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion. For great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Remember back to the temple, full smoke, God's presence. Great in your midst is the Holy One of, of, of Israel. Again, God walks into our presence because our sins have been cleaned. Um, he creates for himself a new community. And uh, Yahweh is again present with his people. So this is chapters 6 through 12. And... Next, uh, next week, and, and I want to do some things to wrap this up, so don't run away, but next week we'll be dealing with chapters 13 through 23, which breaks down actually a little further what this looks like, the judgment side of things. Um, in even 
on like the small nations that surround the people, and then finally on Israel herself. So, um, I wanted to talk about a few of the things on the back of this page, because this class we did call it the gospel in Isaiah, and so I want to come in. I, I think a lot of it is clear, but I do want to see some of the other aspects of the gospel that are important for us to recognize. So where do we catch a glimpse of the gospel in 6 through 12? Um, we obviously see an incredible picture of grace. Isaiah walks in himself filthy, unfit to even speak in God's presence, and, and God cleans him. Um, but probably that, that side is, is, yes, okay, so we see that. The nations experience that. We will experience that. But I love that, the, that second paragraph, the joy that comes from this salvation. And that's a part that I tend to overlook. So, just a couple of uh, lines. It says, another important theme is the joy that comes from the salvation. The prophet put it this way, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. So, in this section, though it's clear that sin runs deep and must be judged, God's grace is deeper still, much, much deeper. Our rightful punishment is heard in the refrain of chapter 9. For all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is still stretched out. That's what we deserve. That refrain, I mean, I even think about ways that I still struggle with sin and think, wow, I feel a lot like a stupid Israelite that doesn't get it. But through purifying and all this stuff, I still struggle with whatever. But because God is gracious and merciful, he gives us the line from 12.1, though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. That's what we experience. The reconciliation available in Christ is a deep well of joy from which we, we must draw. Um, I, had, I had a chance yesterday to go speak, uh, go do like a workshop at a, a conference for college students down in southern Oklahoma. And uh, my topic was, like I, I, was, I had the guys, so they, they were split up for, my, for our talk, so I had all the guys. And my topic was, why we struggle to find sin, deal with it, confess it, all these things. Repent. Um, and one of the, so I was walking through a lot of the stereotypical ways that college guys tend to struggle with sin and why they're experts at hiding it and fooling themselves into thinking it's okay. And I just, uh, one of the topics that, like, I could see it on their face that shocked them was that you can have sinful feelings. Like, what? You mean like lust? I'm like, no, like, when you're sad, sometimes that's a sin. They're like, hold on. My mom said it's always safe to be sad, and that's always okay. <laughs> I say, well, what if you're sad for the wrong reasons? What if you're believing lies and it's changing your mood? Like, there's a good, let's, let's go with fear. Is it ever bad to be afraid? Yes. If you're a spirit-filled believer and you fear for God, like you fear that God will not be righteous and, rec and credit you with the righteousness of Christ, that is sinful fear. It's wrong. Now, if you're like John in Revelation 1, and you see the risen Lord, and you fall down terrified that you might die, that's a good, healthy fear. <laughs> and so, like, I, I look at this, and I see the joy that we're expected to have at this salvation, and I just wonder, like, would it have been wrong? I said the, the most joyful letter, that, that, that Philippian letter where Paul is in prison writing, and he's just overflowing with joy. Like, if Paul writes that letter miserable and, like, just cranky about it, is that sinfully thinking about these things? 
Or does he have some truth that he's holding on to? That, I don't care about this prison. I don't care about Caesar. I'm fine. I have Jesus. He has this joy that, like, in, in many ways, it's like you're reflecting on the truth and you're thinking rightly. I just wonder if we have these, and this is what I'm, I'm talking to these guys. I said, a lot of the emotions that you want to believe are okay, that you can just sit and stew in, are based on willfully believing lies, just so you don't have to deal with it. I said, I have this conversation with my wife all the time. I'll say something, usually sarcastic. She'll get mad. I'll say, but that's not what I meant. And she'll be like, okay, I understand that's not what you meant, but I'm still mad. I'm like, why? <laughs> what? Like, you think you have the right to be angry based on a previous misunderstanding. And eventually, she comes to see him, right? And I just say, like, why do we insist on our right to feel a certain way? Like, why is it always my right to be mad? Because I, for five seconds, was misunderstanding. Even if I miscommunicate, like, I'll take that. But it's like, we, we love to hold on to anger. I'm like, okay. You need to talk to Jesus. But I see in this, like, there's, there's almost, like, I feel like a command to find more joy in my salvation than I do in this passage. Um, we already, in terms of why we should care, we already, I, I outlined kind of the faithfulness of God from Genesis 1 and Adam's failure all the way through um, not only Isaiah 9, which gives us the hope that that Davidic king will actually take place, but I gave you a couple of passages in Ephesians 1 and Revelation 11 where we see Jesus as this enthroned king that has fulfilled everything that was said he should do. Genesis to Revelation, we're talking about one king. Um, and very interesting thing, the very last paragraph on the back page, um, Isaiah describes God in, in chapter 6 as being um, high and lifted up. In Isaiah 52, he describes the suffering servant as being high and lifted up, and he intentionally doesn't try to draw any distinction between the two. And then in John 12, the Apostle John takes Isaiah 6, quotation from it, Isaiah 52, quotation from it, and applies them both to Jesus, knowing what he's doing. This passage about Yahweh is fulfilled in Jesus. This passage about the servant is fulfilled in Jesus. And go look at what it says in John chapter 12 about Jesus. It's an incredible picture of, of the apostle saying, oh, same person, Yahweh God, come as the servant. So that is Isaiah's chapters 6 through 12. Again, a lot of our Messianic texts in the first half of the book will actually be here. Um, let me pray. And we'll hang it up for a week. <clears throat> God, thank you for um, your goodness, your mercy. Thank you for the fact that you're so consistent. And that Isaiah can speak truths that find themselves nestling in this humongous, humongous story. And that when you speak, you speak consistently so, and you are as trustworthy as can be. God, we, uh, we're grateful for passages like these, and I, I read these, and I think of just the kind of the overwhelming expectation of the Christmas season and the, gra the, the, the gratitude that we have as we, uh, as we reflect on this Savior. But it's important to even remember kind of the the bleak 
context in which it all came. And I pray that we would gain a better view of our own sin. That we would see just how dark the bad news is so that we can see how bright that beautiful good news is as well. Thank you for this book and for the time that we get to study together. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.